Live from the United States, which has been justifying unjustifiable wars since 9-11 and before, this is hell, and that's what we're talking about today, justifying the unjustifiable. Whether it's the forever war on terror that was launched by the President George W. Bush administration, or Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's current bombings of civilians and civilian infrastructure, targeting of civilian and civilian infrastructure needed to keep whatever civilians are still left alive. In the wake of 9-11 statements by then-President Bush, as our guest today will point out, set into motion the many wars that followed and the many justifications for wars on terror, including the brutal attacks we are now seeing by Israel's military and government upon Gazans, as well as in the West Bank. Netanyahu is correct that this is Israel's 9-11, but likely not in the way he thinks. Because what he has launched is much like the endless U.S. war that did nothing to stop the killing of civilians, that did nothing to stop terrorism as it continues to become a growing problem, that did nothing to make the country more secure, that only led to more and more war refugees around the world who are then turned away from the borders of the countries that displaced them in the first place that started those wars. In a few minutes, we'll compare and contrast 9-11 and October 7th when we speak with Dr. Maha Halal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Israel, the United States, and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror from September 11, 2001 to October 7, 2023 and beyond. Dr. Halal is the founding executive director of the Muslim Counter Counter Publics Lab, which describes itself as a grassroots community-building organization that uses the tools of research, writing, and organizing, as well as direct victim-centered support and advocacy campaign programming to challenge systems of oppression rooted in Islamophobia. These structures include state and state-sanctioned violence ranging from widespread surveillance and persecution of Muslim communities by law enforcement and immigration authorities to indefinite detention and torture. We believe that in order to be effective in this work, we must confront the pervasive dehumanization of Muslims head-on and offer support to historically marginalized and oppressed communities. As they explain on Twitter, X, whatever it's called, the mission of Muslim counter-publics lab is to disrupt and subvert dehumanizing narratives that are designed and deployed to justify state violence against Muslims. You can find out more about the lab at muslimcounterpublicslab.org. You can follow them on X at muslimcplab. Maha is also the author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, 
Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim experience since 9-11. Her writings have appeared at Vox, Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, The Daily Beast, Newsweek, Business Insider, Truth Out, among other places. And you can follow Maha on Twitter at Dr. That's D-R underscore Maha, M-A-H-A underscore Halal, H-I-L, one single L, H-I-L, A-L. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, how are you? How was your week so far? Uh, my week has been pretty historic. Uh, Chicago just passed uh, pretty much by, it's, it, was, it was split between City Hall and it was basically Brandon Johnson deciding vote to be the biggest city so far to pass to demand a ceasefire resolution that Israel stops bombing Gaza. Yeah, it was 23 to 23. Yeah. I guess four uh, were either abstaining or not present. And then uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson uh, gave the deciding vote in what was a very raucous uh, city council meeting. Oh, you should have been there. Uh, what happened was we were inside city council. And uh, I guess some people, like I guess supposedly were making noises. Yeah, some had coughs. Cough, cough. But then when Deb Silverstein was speaking, but the older woman who was, uh, was like was trying to uh, pretty much shut down the ceasefire resolution. But what happened was, uh, sh- uh, what happened was she, I guess uh, she made big enough complaints where they kicked all of us out of the city council, like where we sit and see it, hear it in public. Right. They kicked all of us out as a big, you know, it was a big ruckus over that, which was I thought was you know crap. Uh, then I went outside. We went outside, and the, eventually we heard the hearings streaming on our cell phones with a loud, with a loud megaphone. Wow. And then eventually uh, it, it was it was like tight. It was like you know it was like almost like it was the tension was so high, and then eventually it was really fun. As we, when it came to what was split, we're like, holy crap, where will Brandon Johnson go, you know? Because right. he supported a week ago, but will he flip, will he not? Right. And then the, one, of the, one of the Palestinian protesters is like, let's see if this guy wants to get reelected. And then basically, uh, he, he joins our side, and, and it was it was a blast of intensity. So, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. It was very, it was very, like, yeah. Very cool. And just so people know, uh, Alderman Deborah Silverstein, who is very opposed to this uh, decision to condemn the uh, bombing of uh, Palestinians in Gaza. She is the alderman of the ward that we are in, that I'm sitting in right now, the ward that I live in, the ward that our studio is in, the ward that uh, the ward that uh, Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us is in. Uh, very long-standing, powerful political family here in the ward. So for me, the week has been rather surprising. First, I was surprised at the turnout for This Is Hell Office Hours this week. Our meet and greet, that's really a drink and think. So thanks to everyone who came out, including Steve, Maria, Eric, Criage, Jordan, Dave, David, Diane, John, Will, Ronaldo, Alex, Leo, and I know I am forgetting somebody, so at least a few people, so my apologies. It was also surprising because an old friend of mine came down from Madison, Wisconsin to join us for office hours. An old friend who has achieved what was his lifelong dream the entire time he was working, and that is to no longer be working and in retiring early. That's been his goal. All those years of working in the corporate world, it's always been to not work. And his goal has finally paid off. Here's the way he described the difference between what I do and what he just retired from doing in that corporate world. I mentioned how doing the show can get depressing because we discuss so many hellish topics on the show. He told me, imagine how I felt. At least you're talking about important stuff, something that's actually important. Imagine what it's like to have to pretend everything is important. 
every day. But more important than what happened at this last week's office hours, or sorry, this week's office hours, Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, which mega rich person would you eat first? Which mega rich person would you eat first? The person with their favorite answer to this week's question from hell. As always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can leave it at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it at us. Or you can just post it in our Discord community. And if you do, we will read your answer on air. Real quick, we heard back from Luke of South Haven, Michigan's Collective Mess, the not-for-profit providing free vegan meals with no religious strings attached that we mentioned earlier this week. Luke writes, good morning, Chuck. Holy... Let's just say he said holy cow. Holy cow, it's been a chaotic couple of weeks, and I'm just now catching up on a few episodes of This Is Hell and heard the shout-out. Thanks so much, my apologies for not getting back to you sooner. We're currently working on a dedicated website so people can find a place to make donations. And he says, I was hoping to wrap that up, but life simply moves too quickly sometimes, as we all know. In the interim, the best options to show your support or to follow what we are doing at Collective Mess is to go to Instagram at collective underscore mess or the fundraising page givebutter.com slash collective mess free meals. Or our temporary webpage, snakeoilroasters.com slash collective dash mess. Sincerely, thanks again, Chuck. I'm hoping to make it down to one of your office hours sometime soon, if those are still happening on Wednesday evenings. And they are, Luke. And Luke says cheers. So, listeners, if you would like to share the mutual aid work you are doing, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And we'll share it with our listening audience on air, including ways that people can help support your work. Coming up, 9-11 and October 7th do not justify the disproportionate response from either the U.S. or Israel. Chris will have our Patreon subscribers, or not Patreon, uh, what is it? Uh, Discord. Uh, Chris will have our Discord communities answers to this week's question from hell we will tell you what happened on uh what's going to be happening on this week's bonus patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell dr sebastian vupper who has a phd in history will be on with an all new past inside the present when he offers the historical context of the past to help us have a better understanding of the present chris what's seb talking about during this week's uh, past inside the present uh, past inside the present, Seb is talking about, he looks at the history of one of the world's truly most hellish texts of the recent centuries, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yikes. Uh, we will also tell you who we have confirmed as guests on next week's shows, and we have the entire work, uh, week already booked. Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell in a very dissenting opinion in the United States is that the reaction to the attacks of 9-11 was unjustified and disproportionate that the wars in Afghan the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere have done nothing to make the US more secure or the world safe from terrorism. In fact, it's arguable that both reactions actually contributed to more terrorism as there has been an increase in terror attacks ever since 9/11 and likely since October 7th as well. Here to help guide us through disturbing concepts like the war on terror 
and its lingering legacy, our guest today is Dr. Maha Halal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Israel, the United States, and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror from September 11th, 2001 to October 7th, 2023 and beyond. Uh, Could you kill the music there, Chris? Thank you. Uh, Welcome to This Is Hell, Maha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is absolutely exceptional work. It just made me think of so many different questions to ask you. And I I hate to do this, but I want to ask you about a couple of things that have kind of broken in the last, I don't know, 72 hours. Truth Out reported earlier this week that the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CA. IR, as it's known, CARE, released data on Monday showing that the organization received 3,578 complaints of anti-Muslim and anti-Palestinian hate between October and December of 2023. This is an increase of 178% over a similar period in the previous year, the organization reported. The increase in hatred came after, earlier in 2023, CARE reported that 2022 saw a drop in complaints of anti-Muslim hatred for the first time since the organization began tracking such incidents in 1995, with a total of 5,156 complaints nationwide in 2022. That was an actual drop. So mainstream establishment media reported extensively on the rise in reports of anti-Semitism following October 7th. The Anti-Defamation League, which counts criticism of the Israeli government as anti-Semitism, they claim that anti-Semitism has skyrocketed by 360% since October 7th. Are we any more or less sensitive to anti-Semitism than we are Islamophobia? Does the media, by your estimation, treat the two, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, in a similar way? You know, know, I honestly would have to say, no, they do not. Um, And, you know, obviously it's important to recognize that both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are significant problems both domestically and across the globe however i think what is usually missing from the analysis is that islamophobia has been institutionalized in american politics so it is part of the state's apparatus and when we look specifically at the war on terror the war on terror is rooted in and entrenched with islamophobia So we have to consider not just the way that Islamophobia is showing up societally, right, through hate crimes, which is interpersonal violence. We also have to look at the ways in which the government specifically is deploying Islamophobia to justify state violence against Muslims. And so in that vein, there is a huge difference. And the other thing I'll, you know, that I I will add to this is, Oftentimes, because of the way that Muslims are disregarded and dehumanized, even when Islamophobia is mentioned as a problem, it's always secondary to anti-Semitism. Even when Muslims themselves are the direct targets, it's still secondary to anti-Semitism. So there doesn't seem to be a universe in which Muslims are actually centered in the way that they're experiencing both state violence and hate crimes. It's also as if anti-Semitism has been around forever and Islamophobia is some kind of 
new concept that we know that that's not true. The Intercept, meanwhile, is reporting that since October 7th, the New York Times has shown deference to Israel's defense forces, uh, sorry, Israelis, uh, Israel's military, while diminishing the scale of death and destruction in Palestine. An Intercept analysis showed found that in the first six weeks of the war, the New York Times, alongside other major publications, consistently delegitimized Palestinian deaths and cultivated a gross imbalance in coverage to pro-Israeli sources and voices. This is actually causing huge divides within the New York Times newsroom right now because of the story that they did about systematic rapes being conducted by Hamas and how that story was not vetted as well as a lot of the journalists at the New York Times wish it had been. To what extent is support for Israel by the public in the U.S.? How much do you think that is influenced by media coverage like that of the New York Times? I mean, after all, we all have access now to all sorts of online news sources. How much do you think establishment media has an influence anymore over the U.S. public's uh, perceptions of Israel? I mean, it has a huge uh, impact on the public's perception. I mean, it's not just New York Times, right? It's the Washington Post. It's CNN. It's MSNBC. It's all of these um, platforms that were extremely pro-Israel immediately and for weeks and weeks after October 7th. And it's very interesting now that because of the public uh, perception, you know, there's been a sort of shift in that, that now they're, you know, deciding to occasionally include a different perspective and point of view. But in those perspectives and point of view, it's still with sort of the, I think, desire and emphasis on, right? Either vindicating Israel or problematizing the perspectives of Palestinians, of Arabs and Muslims. And, you know, it's not just obviously the uh, amount of coverage, right, that Israel is getting and the kind of positive coverage, right, that Israel gets, or at least insofar as it's able to perpetuate its narrative vis-a-vis -vis these platforms, it's also looking at the specific language and narratives that are being used, right? So what are the rhetorical strategies? So, for example, when we know, for example, when Israelis are being, um, if they're killed by Palestinians, it says killed, right? They say that Israelis have been killed. Whereas with Palestinians, it's Palestinians died. And it's as if it's a mystery as to how they died. And so there's, you know, multiple layers to this problem. And I think the the more subtle ways are, the, are these sort of rhetorical tactics that if you don't point them out, if you don't highlight them, right, they contribute a lot in terms of how do we perceive what's happening. And even if we look at language like conflict, right? This is not a conflict, this is a genocide. And so it's important to focus on the ways media is, per is perpetuating a pro-Israeli perspective that is simultaneously operating with the dehumanization of Palestinians. And then what are the specific strategies within that that are being used to entrench certain narratives even more. 
Do you think the just announced uh, sanctions by the Biden administration against, granted, a small group, but some West Bank settlers, do you think that is a sign that there are cracks in the support, either public support uh, of Israel's war on Gaza or the uh, not only just the support for Israel's war on Gaza, but support for Israel in general? Do you think that this is a sign that there are cracks in that support? Um, you know, I think there is definitely cracks in the support for Israel, but in terms of in Biden's support for Israel, I, I don't, I don't see any cracks. It's been pretty consistent. And if there were any cracks, it would literally only be because of the elections. And that essentially just means that the only reason Biden could conceivably care to do anything is because he wants to win the president the presidency and so even that is not exactly you know comforting nor is it really worth anything and if you actually you know consider the measures the measure that he took vis-a-vis this executive order i mean how many people is this actually going to impact and what is the value that he thinks he's offering by putting out such a small symbolic gesture. I mean, it, it, it's actually to the point where it's just extremely insulting, right? We've already seen how deeply Biden supports Israel. He's, Israel is now getting away with a genocide. And to come back with an executive order that essentially does almost nothing is just insulting. And so I think what it says again is that no matter how many cracks there is in supporting in support for Israel, whether it's the American public, whether it's the global community, Biden will still maintain the course of supporting Israel to the extent that you know Palestinians are completely demolished and Gaza is completely destroyed. So what happens to an issue like you know Palestinians being slaughtered right now what happens to an issue like what is happening in Gaza when it all gets boiled down to these two political parties fighting over the next who will be the next president of the United States how does that affect the discussion our debate the way that we view what is happening in Gaza when it all gets boiled down to who's going to be the next president of the United States I mean, unfortunately, we know that regardless of who's president, right, um, the dehumanization of Palestinians, of Arabs and Muslims will continue. There hasn't been a change. I mean, when Biden um, was campaigning for election, you know, in the last cycle, he reached out to Muslims and Arabs. And, you know, there were a lot of Muslims who very much supported him, um, especially because he said he would, uh, you know, get rid of the Muslims ban. And now we look at it in retrospect. I mean, for those of, you know, for those members of the community that actually think Biden was going to do it, you know, I think there's been a lot of pressure recently on, um, you know, Muslims and Arabs in the United States, um, particularly those who are saying they're not going to vote for Biden. And, um, of course, the instant rebuttal is, well, do you want a Trump presidency? And it's like, of course, no one wants a Trump presidency. 
but it's really hard at this point, right, um, to think about voting for a president who has given Israel full throttled support for genocide. And so, you know, I think where the discussion needs to be is how do we build Muslim and Arab political power to sustain momentum, right? And to push back and challenge whoever is in office. Because at this point, we know that both, you know, Democrats and Republicans, Biden and Trump, have no interest in the lives of Muslims, Arabs, and Palestinians to the point, of course, where our deaths are seen as completely legitimate. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, a catchphrase in the media that was repeated and was never true was, we're all in this together. After 9-11, a question we often heard asked was, why do they hate us? In fact, we had a guest on the show two weeks prior to the 2003 U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, the Welsh scholar of Islam, Meryl Wynne Davies, to talk about the book she co-authored, Why Do People Hate America?, which she co-wrote with award-winning writer and cultural uh, critic Ziaden Sardar. What does it reveal to you about the United States in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when so many were asking why do they hate us? What does it say about the U.S. when today, like after 9-11, there are so many with who believe that the U.S. is, as President Bush has said before in the past, a country of peace and most importantly, innocent of any wrongdoing. What does it say to you about America when we were asking why do they hate us after 9-11? Well, you know, first of all, as I, you know, have written several times in different places, right, um, the idea of, of Americans asking why they hate us um, is one that Bush actually inserted into his speech on September 20th of 2001. And so, you know, the reason that's important is because it begs the question of were Americans actually asking why do they hate us? I mean, is that instantly the framework through which Americans were seeing what happened and how the United States were you know, we're attacking, not necessarily. I mean, perhaps there is a good number of people who thought that, but Bush in his speech specifically put out that question. And that question was about framing and telling a story about why the 9-11 ha attacks happened. And that's an intentional strategy because hate, right, is a very human sort of emotion, right? It's a, it's a, it's an emotion. And that is to say that when you're explaining acts of violence vis-a-vis -vis emotions, right? You're essentially trying to say that there is no actual legitimate reason that the United States could have been attacked. Um, and, you know, the whole war on terror narrative has been precisely about that, that the United States is a blameless victim, right? That 9-11 marks this day in history that signifies suffering that apparently has not happened on such a great scale, obviously because it's the United States that was attacked. Um, the U.S. has no explanation for this. It's just, you know, evil, hateful people that attacked. And, um, you know, of course, we can't look at past interventions that the United States 
has launched and continued, you know, the, all the countries that the United States has terrorized. Those are not explanations. It's simply just about, they just hate us because we love democracy. We have freedoms here and there's no other explanation. And because that was the framework that was offered from the very beginning, right? The idea was to shape American perception and public opinion so that they would view the interventions and the responses from the US government narrowly through that lens. Because if someone is, if a group is just evil and hateful, uh, then you can't reason with them, right? You can't, there's no diplomatic solution. The only intervention that works by this logic is just brute force. When I've had discussions with uh, listeners, just people who I run into here at the bar downstairs, uh, they'll often, uh, when the, the uh, topic of Hamas, uh, Gaza, and Israel comes up, they'll often say that, you know, both, they're, both sides are doing bad things and uh, more than anything else, this is unjustifiable, especially the attack of October 7th. That is unjustifiable. That's the first step they often say. So with both 9-11 and October 7th, though, it's as if history started on that date and nothing else that ever happened beforehand mattered. However, mentioning any historical context into a discussion on e either is often labeled as, again, a justification for deadly acts, that it becomes a yes but or a discussion grounded in whataboutism that is countering an accusation with a different question. How can we both have a better understanding of tragedies like 9-11 or October 7th by examining the historical context without justifying a deadly attack that took civilian lives? You know, I, I I think part of the problem, right, is that it's not always just a it's not always a justification. I think people are, you know, default to that to that characterization. But that is to say, right, again, that there is this context, that there is violence from both states that precedes the attacks. And also, you know, through the work that I do really highlighting the fact that oftentimes the way different groups are responding, the, the way that Muslims respond, right? Even if there is a violent response, that is not an abnormal necessarily reaction, right? To the violence, state violence that continues to be inflicted upon them. I mean, that's one of the ways that these countries get away with it is to say that, you know, Muslims, for example, are, are reacting irrationally and what do other places do right when the united states is attacked the response is from the government but because we don't see you know we don't personalize right the government because it, it seems like it's a different entity right then we don't tend to characterize it in the same ways but so that is to say that you know the reactions of people that are being subjected to violence time and time again is deemed irrational and hateful. And so there's no explanation. Whereas we know that a lot of people would react in the same way if they continued to be subjected to the same conditions. I mean, when you look at Israeli complaints about Palestinians and what's happening in Palestine, right? It's, it's pretty uh, incredible. 
considering the different lives that each group leads. Gaza is being demolished. The whole country, the whole Gaza Strip has practically been destroyed. And so, you know, I think the context and the history is obviously very important. And then as well, right, um, there's this, you know, rhetorical structure too about, you know, Israel's war with Hamas. Israel is not at war with Hamas. Um, Israel is waging a war that has resulted in genocide on the Palestinians. And I mention that because of the power differential, because in responding, both the United States and Israel act as though there is, you know, no, there's power symmetry and there is no power symmetry and they know that, but they're acting as if there, there is in order to wage the catastrophic violence that they wage. And so there are so, you know, so many elements of this dynamic. And, you know, when we continue to fixate on these particular dates, right? The idea is that nothing of this level of violence has happened to anyone else, including those who are targeted after these dates. I mean, if we if we iconicize every single date Palestinians had been targeted in on mass, right, by Israel. We would get lost in the number of dates. You also write about how this being framed as uh, the attack on October 7th by Hamas as a surprise attack. You mentioned how President Bush, George W. Bush, in his uh, September 20th, uh, 2001 speech said that provided a, he provided a framework for understanding the motives of the terrorists, precluding the possibility that American actions prior to 9-11 could in any way have explained the attacks. In other words, he positioned his country as a blameless victim, as you were saying. As Bush put it, all of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. In fact, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and others were comparing the attack by Hamas to Pearl Harbor, a sneak attack nobody expected, supposedly, except at the time, an attack from Japan was completely expected because, among other reasons, the U.S. had an embargo on scrap metal shipments to uh, Japan and closed the Panama Canal to Japanese shipping. This was devastating to Japan's economy, as nearly three-quarters of Japan's scrap iron came from the United States, as well as nearly all of Japan's copper. Why is the public, why do you think the public is so susceptible to this message that everything before whatever event happens has no bearing on this event whatsoever. Why are we so willing to believe anything comes completely without any context? Why do we want to quickly dismiss any discussion of the root causes of whatever tragedy has happened? I mean, the United States obviously, you know, has a vested interest in constructing itself as a particular kind of country, right? Where a country that um, believes in democracy, that has freedoms, all of these kind of things. And, you know, Americans by and large seem to like that construction and don't want to believe, right, there that they live in a country that is inflicting all of this violence domestically and across the globe. So... You know, it, it's just interesting, right? Because I think it, when you live in other countries, um, people are seem to be a lot more cognizant of what their country is responsible for and the the violence that you know is inflicted on other people. But the United States, it, it seems like um, 
Americans are not interested in learning the truth, right? And even when we talk about the way that we message and narrate even counter narratives, right? It always has to still be rooted in these dominant narratives. So for example, when we were doing advocacy around the Muslim ban, a lot of the ways that people approached it was to say that this is not who the United States is. It's a country of immigrants. We know that's not true. The United States has targeted various groups of immigrants throughout its history. But because of the idea and perception that you know, we have to cater to Americans in a way that's palatable to them, right? To make them believe that this country is essentially good, then that was the messaging strategy that went out instead of just telling the truth. This country is violent, doesn't care about immigrants, especially if you're, uh, you know, of color immigrants. And so there continues to be this mythology that is perpetuated. Um, and, you know, you know, alongside that, if we even look at 9-11, right, 9-11, uh, September 11th, 2001 is not the only September 11th, 2001, is not the only September 11th, right, that has um, violence attached to it. We know in September, on September 11th of 1973, there was a coup in Chile that was supported by the U.S., uh, in which the General Augusto Pinochet, right, seized power. Most Americans probably don't know about this because the only 9-11 they've been taught about is the one that involves Americans as the victims. And so there are all these ways that the narrative is being entrenched time and time and time again. And, you know, I think the last thing is there is um, this, you know, particular strategy around investing in the ignorance of Americans. So it's not just hiding the truth. It's specifically about entrenching ignorance, finding ways to make Americans ignorant. Because when you're ignorant, you're not going to challenge and question authority and the stories and narratives that are being fed to you by the U.S. government. Do you think that any public unwillingness here in the United States to consider historical context because do you think that's in any way because of or or baked into our country from the very beginning because of our denialism that we have have had as a society since the beginning of this country when it comes to indigenous genocide? Do you think we are just a society and a culture that is just ready and willing to deny whatever past makes us feel uncomfortable? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I also think it depends on like, uh, it depends on, you know, what are the ways you think the United States move, needs to move forward? So is this country one that can be sort of rectified? Is it a country that can redeem itself? Um, and if if that were to be the case, then it would absolutely be imperative that the historical legacies of violence be remediated and addressed. But if you think this country is a perfect country, and um, for example, why has there been such a crackdown on critical race theory? Because Americans, some Americans don't want other Americans to know the truth. 
and you're happy and comfortable living in this mythologized United States. And particularly, we, we need to say why you're comfortable living in that mythologized United States, because it supports a particular group of people, right? Particular, particularly white people in sustain, right? In continuing their position of dominance over communities of color. So it's not just about what is it that we want to believe. It's also about what do, how do our beliefs correspond to the positions and the hierarchies that we want to maintain in the United States. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also has compared the bombing of Gaza to the shock and awe campaigns of the United States against Iraq, essentially saying, if the United States is allowed to do this, then we should do it too. Look, if you supported the attack on Iraq, then you should support this too. In response to 9-11, the Bush administration created the conditions for more justifications for good wars and the kind of war that can be launched by declaring a war on terror, as well as a massive bombardment campaign that includes the targeting of civilian infrastructure via the excuse that it supports the military too. Do you think another rationalization for war the war on terror that the Bush administration came up with, and increased lethality in first wave attacks like the shock and awe campaign. Do you think that those were unintended consequences by the Bush administration? Were these outcomes of poor policies or this is what they expected and desired? A reason to always go to war and a way to increase its lethality. I mean, we have to look at, obviously, the United States' history, and the United States is always at war. And, you know, something I wrote in my book in particular was that U.S. wars don't end. They just morph into new wars that preserve the brutality of wars past. So there's, for me as a researcher and writer, um, and as someone who's Muslim and Arab, I obviously do not believe that the war on terror was launched to actually solve any problem whatsoever. It is because the United States fundamentally cannot conceive of any other intervention other than militarism and warfare. And so there have been a lot of casualties, obviously, right? And so what does it do to support that agenda, which is to manufacture lies, to tell stories that aren't true or decontextualized. So, you know, absolutely. I think uh, um, <laughs> the United States is just fundamentally a war country. And, and, you know, the fact that Israel is taking license to inflict more violence on Palestinians because of the examples set by the United States should be a point of shame. But obviously, because we live in the United States that is extremely pro-Israel, uh, it's probably just a point of pride for the elite and the president and his administration. You were saying the United States is always at war. Well, let me in- reintroduce you to the audience first. We are speaking with Dr. Maha Halal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Israel, the United States, and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror, from September 11th, 2001 to October 7th, 2023. And beyond, Maha is the author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, 
the war on terror, and the Muslim experience since 9-11. You can follow Maha on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Underscore Maha underscore Halal. So you were saying that the United States is always at war. And as we know, since 9-11, 2001, we have been engaged in this forever war. You write that in the official response to the 9-11 attacks, President Bush also used the phrase war on terror for the first time, stating all too ominously in retrospect, our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Now, when I first saw and heard uh, President Bush saying that, I thought we are not only going to war with whoever, Iraq, Afghanistan, some single country, we're going to war against the whole world, and it will be endless because you can't end terrorist violence in action but also an idea with bombs, just like we've learned that there is no military solution to the idea of fascism. How aware do you think the public was that Bush was declaring a forever war? You know, I would have to say they probably were not aware um, because the phrase war on terror in and of itself is so nebulous. And what is it actually saying? Um and I think, you know, this is a speech from the speech that he gave nine days after the 9-11 attacks. And so from that view, right, being that it was so close to the 9-11 attacks, you know, those particular speeches, right, they're meant to be authoritative, right? It was delivered by a president. And it was a delivered by a president who needed to reassure the American public that the United States was going to do all it could to rectify and, you know, wage some kind of war against the people who attacked the United States. So there was a reason why he had to say it in the way that he did in order to acquiesce, right? Or in order to sort of cater to the fears Americans had after this attack. Um, Obviously, if you're someone who looks at, you know, speeches and narratives critically, as well as, you know, what the United States' war on terror has morphed into, this was clearly a red flag, that this was going to be endless war. But the thing is, when we look at the war on terror as it stands right now, many people think the war on terror is over. Because what has come to define the war on terror has often been narrowly conceived as the war on Afghanistan, the war on Iraq. And according to the US government, right, both wars are essentially over. So there's not only this endless war that's being waged, it's also re-narrated back to the American public that it has mostly been won. And, you know, when I answer, when I try to answer the question of, is the war on terror over? So, you know, when Biden withdrew the troops from Afghanistan in 2021, August of 2021, he repeatedly said the war was over. Now, of course, again, U.S. wars do not end. And Afghanistan is by no means experiencing less violence. But I also look back to a very specific quote from a 13-year-old Pakistani boy who in a congressional testimony in 2013 
said, quote, I no longer love blue skies. In fact, I now prefer gray skies. The drones do not fly when the skies are gray. And the reason why this answers the question of whether the war on terror is over with a no, it's not, is because the threat and omnipresence of U.S. violence is still there for so many countries and communities around the globe. And to me, as long as that threat is omnipresent, as long as a young child looks up at the sky and correlates the color of the sky with the probability of U.S. violence directed at them, the war is not over. And so we know the war is not over because that has not happened, that people do not live without fear of U.S. state violence in their countries and communities. You write that Israel has relied on a framework to consistently peddle a depoliticized narrative of Hamas, which roots any violence committed in a fundamental and irrational opposition to the state of Israel and inherent hatred of the Jewish people, as opposed to the uh, long-standing regime of occupation, apartheid, and now genocide of Palestinians. Hamas and other non-state actors are, of course, always portrayed as, quote, driven by fanaticism, as Scott Pointing and David White, co-editors of Counterterrorism and State Police Violence, The War on Terror as Terror Note, while state violence, in contrast, is presented as defensive, res- uh, responsible, rational, and avoidable, and not motivated by a particular ideological bias or political choice. So, Maha, what's wrong with viewing the state as a rational actor and non-state actors as fanatics? When we are, you know, consuming news, what's wrong with us making that assumption? Okay, well, first of all, you know, whether it's Al-Qaeda or Hamas, and I'm not equating the two by any means, so that should be clear, right? Because Israel and the U.S. like to do that as if, uh, specifically to impose some sort of like religious motivation onto Hamas. Um, but the reason that is, you know, this idea is peddled is because, you know, the state, the idea of a state is that it has the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. And what's important here is in narrating and, you know, perpetuating the narrative around that idea, you have to position op- position your opposition to the other group as them being irrational and them having no reasonable explanation. When in fact, you know, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda released numerous statements explaining why the United States had been attacked. And Hamas also lays out and has laid out reasons for its political grievances. In fact, they recently released a document called Our Narrative, which speaks specifically about the attacks on October 7th. So there is a sort of intentional, obviously not sort of, there's an intentional silencing and gaslighting that happens not only because they choose to marginalize, right, and completely act as though these explanations don't exist, but it's to be able to wage unfettered violence. Because again, if you're dealing with a group of people whose motivations and, and rationales cannot be understood, 
then you have to use brute force. And it is in your benefit, right, to construct groups and organizations in this way, because then they are also dehumanized. And we know when groups and communities are dehumanized, of course, it facilitates and justifies violence against them. So this is an intentional strategy. And both countries have continued to use this strategy, again, to justify their violence and unending violence. So is the war on Gaza, the current war that is taking place at this moment in 2024, is it related in any way to the forever war or to the attacks of 9-11 and the response, especially the response to the attacks of 9-11? Should we conceive of this century as one long forever war and that every war is somehow connected going back to 2001 and the response by the United States? Um, you know, I think I think there's elements of it, yes, um, that we can conceive of in that way. Um, I think to me, what is sort of the overarching, you know, point and what is the sort of most important problem here is this depolarization of these groups and is the complete avoidance and minimization of the explanations for violence which means that there's never going to be a non-military solution so long as both countries can peddle these lies. So it doesn't inherently have to be endless, but it, it will be endless as long as these ideas and narratives are not challenged. So I think that's the part that we need to be critical and continue to resist and challenge is these narratives that are allowing these wars to continue to be driven. And I think in the case of Israel, right, Israel is obviously weaponizing this rhetoric of terror and particularly, right, tethering itself to the U.S.'s war on terror rhetoric. But at the same time, theoretically, they have a sort of more narrow uh, problem. The United States has waged war on like 13, uh, not 13, I don't even know the number of countries, right? There's military bases all over the world. Um, but again, so long as they're both utilizing the same rationales, of course, the wars are going to continue. And I should say that, you know, a lot of my work, I am focused on the U.S.'s war on terror. But there's also this whole other sphere, right, that relates not just to the piece I wrote in terms of Israel's adoption of U.S. war on terror rhetoric, but there's this whole other sphere of how other countries across the globe have utilized and deployed not just the rhetoric, but the policies of the war on terror. So, you know, I think there's, again, maybe I should backtrack and say there's a lot of different ways to look at this in terms of the U.S.'s own war on terror, the countries that have capitalized on the war on terror and used the U.S.'s war on terror as a blueprint. And then what is sort of our role as, you know, people that are in opposition to these wars in pushing back and ending them because of course they were designed to be nebulous but that is driven by these laws and policies and particularly the narrative that allows for their continuance 
One last question for you, Maha. We have been speaking with Dr. Maha Halal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, Israel, the United States, and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror from 9-11 to October 7th and beyond. You can find out more about the organization that she is the executive director of, the Muslim Counter Publics Lab, by going to muslimcounterpublicslab.org. You can also follow them on Twitter at MuslimCPLab. Maha is also the author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, The War on Terror, and The Muslim Experience Since 9-11. You can follow Maha on Twitter at dr underscore maha underscore halal. That's H-I-L-A-L. One last question for you, Maha, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask. That's where it's going to fall in for me. You may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that as with President George W. Bush's argument that the 9-11 attackers were the heirs of all the murderous ideologies of the 20th century and they follow in the path of fascism and Nazism and totalitarianism. Benjamin Netanyahu urged a mobilization of countries across the world to eliminate Hamas on a similar basis. To this end, he asserted that just as the civilized world united to defeat the Nazis and united to defeat ISIS, which is arguable, the civilized world must unite to defeat Hamas. So, Maha, I'm going to hate asking this. Are ISIS and Hamas just like the Nazis? And if not, how are they different? Uh, no, they're not just like the Nazis. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think I think there's a lot of layers to this question, right? Um, the first is that, you know, we have to understand what what drives the violence. Um, and in the case of, you know, Hamas and ISIS, right? If the United States, withdrew or if it let's say even better if they never waged violence on arab countries muslim majority countries would these two groups exist and unless we are able to answer that question to extract that part of the equation then it cannot be the same as nazism because nazism is based on superiority right of non-Jewish people, of Christian white people. And that's different, right? When we look at ISIS and Hamas, they're not asserting necessarily the superiority. And whatever it is, whatever violence they're waging has a direct link, right? It is directly challenging the United States' violence and Israel's violence. So without us being able to remove that from the equation, and even if we could, you know, I don't, Nazism is just not the same. I mean, well, the reason why people use that, the reason why it's being introduced into the narrative is, of course, to elevate the threat and to think of Hamas and ISIS as rooted in these deep ideologies of, you know, just complete violence and destruction of anyone who's not Arab or Muslim, as opposed to just get out of our countries. Just stop waging violence on us. So the Nazis were not being subjected to violence from an external power. They were creating the violence. They were targeting Jewish and non-Jewish people. So they they simply cannot be equated. And, you know, it's it's pretty enraging that that, is, that equation is being made. 
considering how much violence the United States and Israel have waged on Muslim-majority countries and Arab countries and Palestinians, right? Um, when you consider how much violence has been directed back, and not even just directed back in these particular instances in 9-11 and October 7th, but for as long as these two parties, right, have been in some point of conflict or war. So my answer is no, they should not be compared. They are not the same thing. And um, obviously there's an intentional strategy that motivates this comparison. And that is to say that they are at such an evil and demonic level as Nazis that they need to be eliminated. Um, and to do that and to say that is to also say, we are not going to deal with the problems that created this violence. And so long as you're not going to deal with the problems that created the violence, there's going to continue to be violence. And as people have pointed out in on our show in the past, you know, this, this is the kind of violence that uh, just perpetuates more violence and more violence and more violence. And it doesn't actually lead to a solution. There is no military solution to terrorism. Maha, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. This is absolutely fantastic work and people should check out your book again innocent until proven muslim islamophobia the war on terror and the muslim experience since 9 11. thank you so much for being on our show today thank you for having me all right take care you too live from the united states where we allow israel's government and military to refuse the free press access to gaza this is hell. If you learned how terrible the whole idea of the war on terror was, or realize how 9-11 is now being exploited to start even more forever wars. If you enjoyed our conversation or learned something from our conversation, it's probably a better way to say that from with Maha. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. On this week's Patreon podcast, which goes live Friday morning, February 2nd. I know everybody's moved on, but I still got COVID. I don't mean right now, like I tested positive this morning. But I do have COVID. Maybe it's long COVID, as I have many of the symptoms. Although those symptoms may be caused by drinking too much beer and smoking too much weed. But I definitely got lingering issues from COVID, physical and emotional. And I'm bet betting a lot of you do, too. You're not alone and find out how there are others, like myself, who may be just like you, during my rant on Patreon this week. Also on Patreon, by the way, did you know 20,000 people have died in the United States from COVID since the beginning of the war in Gaza? Right around the same number of people who have died in Gaza. Yikes, just found that out yesterday. Also on Patreon, as I mentioned during our talk with Maha today on March 1st, 2003, two weeks to the day before the 2003 U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, we spoke with the Welsh scholar of Islam, Merowyn Davies, about the book she co-authored, Why Do People Hate America?, which she wrote with award-winning writer and cultural critic Ziadin Sardar. Merrill argued that with all of its military might, but all of its cultural influence as well, the U.S. had become the world's first hyperpower. 
its cultural influence has led to exporting its value system, imposing it on the world whether they like it or not. And judging by U.S. history, especially recently, American values are pretty awful when put in practice. But this is not a cultural exchange. The arrogance and hubris of the United States leads to a mocking dismissal of almost every other country's culture. Yes, the world does hate America, and probably for a lot of the same reasons we here in the States do, too. But the only way you can hear me talk about the lingering effects of COVID on me, and maybe on you, and learn why they hate us, is by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Chris, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding in our This Is Hell Discord community? Uh, yes, so the question from hell is, which mega-rich person would you eat first? And from our Discord community, I see Cam. Cam answered with Indian plutocrat, Indian plutocrat Mukesh Ambani. He's a vegetarian. I'm trying to eat clean when the revolution comes. <laughs> and I'll add something to that a little bit later when I give my answer to this week's question, Mel. Go ahead. And the next one is from Kim, a Warren Buffett buffet. <laughs> Sorry, I like to eat a liberal amount. Oh, God, there's so many bad puns in there. <sighs> and then Dig Dug wrote, we can share them around like one of those conveyor belt restaurants. <laughs> a nice conveyor belt graphic over there. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. That's all in our Discord community. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole, on X at This Is Hell Radio, post it in our Discord community, email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com. Or if you are a subscriber, you can get first crack at answering the question every week at patreon.com slash this is hell, and you can leave your answer there. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing the winner following Seb Vuper and the past inside the present. And that's what we're going to do right now. Dr. Sebastian Vuper, a historian himself, gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past, Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past, Inside the Present. I'm sorry, I was muted for some reason. Yeah, Um, don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, from the top. So today I want to talk about the urtext of modern intellectual anti-Semitism. This is still part of the ongoing series of mine on the history of Israel, Palestine, and Zionism. Because without understanding what anti-Semitism actually is, it is difficult to understand what Zionism actually is. Uh, And it is also important to highlight what, you know, actual anti-Semitism looks like as opposed to critique of anything Israel uh, does as anti-Semitism, um, as opposed to to the thing where people say that if you critique anything that Israel does as anti-Semitism, that makes sense. Because talking about the history of Zionism is never not somewhat frustrating because, well, at least me, I do have a desire to side with the Jews and 
kind of with the Zionists because look at all the gross nonsense their people have been subjected to for such a long time. But my wanting to side with them will not go so far as to allow for war crimes, ethnic cleansing, genocide, and fascism on their part. Friends don't let friends do fascism. Uh, but anyway... So what is true anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism that isn't, as it is called in the German press, quote-unquote, Israel-related anti-Semitism, which is just chef's kiss, guys. Very serious people at work there. I talked about anti-Semitism before, especially in the context of the long, long history of European hatred for Jews. At the core of it is the issue that the Jewish people have always been an other within European society in part due to Jewish traditions and practices, most of all just because they simply were not Christian. They did not go to church and therefore organize their spiritual lives around other things than their Christian neighbors did. But then the Christian neighbors didn't necessarily want much to do with them, they shunned the Jews, and in many places had the Jewish folk uh, then stripped of most of their rights. Those in power in those Christian regions of Europe uh, had the Jews then live in dedicated Jewish quarters of, uh, of town, allowed them to only practice trades that were uncouth for Christians, especially trades that involved money lending and trade. And then there was and still is the supposed issue that Jews easily pass for non-Jews um, because they are, as an ethnicity, not really visually distinct. So many places across Europe insisted Jews wear some sort of marker on their clothes or a funny-looking hat to make them identifiable as Jews. Um, and this was centuries before the Nazis did that again. So another idea that the Nazis just plagiarized from earlier assholes of the past. Uh, and then the outsider status and the trades the Jews were pushed into were used to again construct further hateful stereotypes about them, which is pretty screwed up. So first the Jews get pushed into the trades of money exchange and lending, and then because that's what they're allowed to do, that's the only thing they're allowed to do, that turns into a stereotype that all Jews love money and will always seek to cheat you with their fancy math when doing exchanges or charging interest and so forth. Being pushed into those trades also gave rise to this weird idea that they are incapable of creating things because they were just never allowed to by the societies they lived in. Again, kind of a circular logic. But that all is just prelude. In August 1903, the far-right St. Petersburg newspaper Znamaya, Znamaya, Znamaya began uh, the publication of a text that until today is one of the central pillars of conspiratorial intellectual anti-Semitism. And this text was called The Protocols of the Learned Sages of Zion or The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, as it is mostly known today. Published over 24 installments in this newspaper, this text laid out the existence and the plan of a global Jewish conspiracy bent on overthrowing Western civilization and enacting Jewish rule over the world forever. These alleged protocols would be reprinted in Russian far-right newspapers repeatedly over the course of the early 1900s, with some alterations and additions between publications. The text was then eventually published as a discrete pamphlet collecting the individual installments in 1906. And then six years later, by, by 1912, about 20 editions of the protocols had been published across Russia. 
the initial publication in 1903 was also followed by a wave of anti-Jewish pogroms across the Russian Empire. And that was because the publishers of these initial protocols were themselves political actors who, after publication, further fanned the flames of anti-Jewish hatred that culminated in these pogroms. And they used the protocols as, you know, proof to initiate these pogroms across the Russian Empire. The protocols were used across uh, Russia to blame all sorts of national mishaps on Jews, from the losses in the Russo-Japanese War to the 1905 revolution. Uh, when the communists were then successful in the October Revolution in 1917, large groups of conservative and reactionary Russians fled into Western Europe and also to the United States from the newly established Soviet Union, and they brought the protocols with them. The first version of the protocols began circulating in the United States as early as 1918, the first English language version in the United States anyway. Uh, the text made the rounds among diplomats and high-ranking members of the military. The protocols saw their arguably widest circulation in the United States when none other than Henry Ford published excerpts and quotations from them in his Dearborn Independent newspaper. A few years later, Ford published these articles uh, collected in book form as uh, a book called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. Great guy, this Ford. A, a libel suit in 1926 uh, brought by a Jewish businessman then forced Ford to issue retractions and apologies. But the damage was done. The protocols were out there. Um, earlier, by 1920, translations of the protocols had also appeared in Germany, France, Poland, England, and again in the United States. In the same year, in 1920, British journalist Lucien Wolfe published a book in which he documented how the protocols were actually a forgery and a hoax. And a year later, in 1921, a series of articles in the London Times, again by Wolfe, repeated these findings and discredited the protocols as a forgery. But the problem with conspiracy literature, especially with conspiracy literature that asserts that a powerful group controls the media and is bent on world domination, is that, well, it is damn easy to just brush these findings off as... As, well, obviously, the elders of Zion want us to think that the protocols are a hoax. So what exactly are the protocols of the elders of Zion? Long story short, as Mr. Wolf found, they are a hoax, a forgery, and a fabrication. While the concrete authorship of the initial Russian text is unclear, liter literary analysts have spent decades pulling them apart. Currently, it is assumed that the protocols originated with a man called Pyotr Rachovsky, the chief of the Tsar's secret police foreign branch in Paris at the tail end of the 19th century, which it's that's kind of what the sentence. Uh, Rachovsky is assumed to have composed the original version of the protocols about at about 1897. Italian scholar uh, Cesare di Michele, himself widely accepted as the ruling authority on the hist history of the protocols, calls this the quote-unquote archetypical version of the protocols of the elders, uh, elders of Zion. Uh, Rakowski composed this archetype during a time at which France was itself gripped by a wave of virulent anti-Semitism during the Dreyfus Affair, uh, where a Jewish artillery officer was convicted of betraying army secrets to the Germans. The scandal was highly publicized and resulted in mass protests against Jews in France. You may remember I talked about this before in the segment on Theodor Herzl, who these protests allegedly inspired to start the Zionist movement. 
Small world, indeed. Uh, this original French version then made it back to Russia with Rakowski, where it was then translated into Russian and slightly altered and subsequently published in far-right newspapers. In terms of contents, consensus is that the protocols consist of a mishmash of language lifted from anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic texts published during the 19th century. Large parts of the main text contain plagiarized passages from a French political satire called The Dialogues Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu in Hell, uh, as well as parts from an anti-Semitic German novel, which itself was again based on uh, this earlier satire, because the world of what Umberto Eco calls intellectual anti-Semitism was surprisingly small and obscure. The dialogues made no mention of Jews, actually. Instead, the, the dialogues between uh, Machiavelli and Montesquieu and Hell instead lampooned the political ambitions of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte III. The author of the German anti-Semitic novel, as well as the author of the protocol, simply applied the gist of the dialogues to Jews instead of the French despot. The protocols are uh, presented as a found document that was produced during a fictional meeting of the titular elders of Zion, sometimes described to be the actual Zionist movement. What makes the protocol such an excellent conspiracy bait, though, is that the schemes and plans laid out within them are kept vague in the details. There are no names, no dates, no locations, or any specific information on how this purported world conspiracy was going to enact all these nefarious things. This allowed people to read into the text whatever concrete issues they wanted. In the United States, for example, one early publication in the Philadelphia newspaper went so far as to erase all references to Judaism in the text and replace them with Bolshevism instead, presenting the text as a protocol of a meeting of Bolshevik conspirators with a plan to overthrow Western civilization. The protocols are in many ways a, a condensation um, of the worst anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes that circulated in the 19th century. Beyond the initial proposition of an all-powerful Jewish world conspiracy, the protocols assert that this conspiracy is out for control through money, control of the media, and corruption of Western political institutions. That the protocols had a large impact in Germany, especially after World War I, will likely surprise very few. The early Nazi movement used them as supposed proof that the Jews had engineered the war and also that they had engineered Germany's defeat, as well as the chaos that gripped the country after. To the Nazis, the protocol served as a prime justification for their actions against the Jewish people. However, research shows that the Nazi leaders did themselves not lend much credence to the protocols. Rather, they were aware of how useful a propaganda tool they were and made wide use of it without really buying into them the, 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 the contents themselves. After World War II and the defeat of the Nazis, the protocols would still not die, which proves how powerful conspirator conspiratorial texts they are, really. Frequent subsequent debunkings did little to quell their influence. In the second half of the 20th century, the protocols, spent, uh, for example, spread across the Arab world, where they fueled anti-Semitism but then mixed with opposition to Israel. In 1988, the newly formed Hamas organization cited the protocols, claiming that they laid out the Zionist plan of world domination, which again proves how the vagueness and lack of specificity of the text lends itself to continued interpretation. You can blame the Russian revolutions on the elders of Zion with the texts, or other Russian revolutions, or World War One, or World War II, or the creation and continued existence of the state of Israel. 
Hamas had since, has since updated their charter. The recent version no longer ref references the protocols, nor does it call for an eradication of all Jews, which I should elaborate further on the differences between Arab anti-Semitism and European anti-Semitism because they're not really the same, but that is another hellish, hellish story. And uh, yeah, Czech is pointing at the clock. So for another hellish time. So Seb, have you ever seen a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? I, I did actually uh, seek one out for uh, writing this writing this segment. So did you get one? Uh, I mean, not a physical one, but you can just Google it. They're, oh, right. they're like on they're on archive.org. If you if you are so inclined, they're I mean they're kind of a mess. But uh. I've only seen them the actual hard copy of it. It was like a stapled together, but it wasn't you know nicely printed copy. Uh, the only time I ever saw a copy was there used to be. <laughs> A Russian Jewish bookstore over here at California and Devon, run by this really old guy, and I it uh, couldn't believe that he had a copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and he was selling it at his Russian Jewish bookstore. And so I was going to buy it, and I was like, I just can't do this. I can't walk up to that old Jewish guy and buy the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So instead, I bought a enamel Vladimir Lenin pin. <laughs> Also, good choice. I know, uh, but, but then what the hell? He's selling the protocols of the elders of Zion and Lenin pins. I was I'm totally confused. I don't know. Maybe he sold that in in a way as, "Hey, I'm an old Russian Jewish guy. If I sell this, then it kind of proves that you know there's nothing to it. Here, here, have it. This is nonsense." Ah, look at you. You're smarter yeah. than I am. Probably worked on me too. <laughs> All right, Sab. Until next week. Till Monday. Till Monday. Oh my God, I got to write a whole segment again tomorrow. <laughs> anyway. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Chris, please remind us what was this week's question from hell for our listening audience. I know there's a few answers on Facebook we haven't gotten to. And then, after Chris reads the rest of the answers, he is going to be sharing an audio answer from our first guest this week, Kat Bohannon, author of Eve on 200 million years of human evolution and having a better understanding of that evolution gives us a better understanding of what and who women are. So first, Chris, what are the uh, answers that uh, people have left on Facebook? All right, well, the Facebook answers to which mega rich person would you eat first? Yum, yum. Is... <laughs> Thank you for your editorializing. <laughs> no problem. Uh... <laughs> It's uh, the, comes from Jeff. Jeff wrote, first you come across." <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and then Braden wrote, "Whichever one I can count into leaving me in their will." <laughs> That's a good one. And then Borky Balboa, love that name. <laughs> I do too. Uh, wrote, I'm sure it's his real name. All of them. <laughs> and is there one more? Uh, let me check real quick. There were four answers there. I don't know. Maybe yeah. we already got two of them. Okay, this is an interesting one. Is um, what do you mean by quote unquote eat? Oh, Cannibalism or oral sex? <laughs> That's just disgusting. Okay, and do you have cats uh, answer queued up, or are there other uh, stragglers that you want yeah, to get to? Yeah, no other stragglers. Okay, and we'll get to cat. Yeah. 
Okay, so I see what you're doing there. Eat the rich. Like, what if we actually eat the rich? Okay, well, probably don't eat the rich because don't eat people. Just just cannibalism. Just don't do that. Um, also, don't eat brains because of prion diseases. It's a bad idea to eat other people's brains. Uh, zombie, not a good path. Going to turn your brain into something like Swiss cheese if they've got the wrong proteins folded up in there. But the main reason probably not to eat the mega rich is that most of them are male. Most mega rich people are men. They're cis men and they have testicles and so there's two words for you then reason not to eat rich people um boar taint just boar taint so most pigs are castrated if you're growing them for meat because the meat will taste absolutely terrible if you don't because those testicles are producing something called androstenone it's a hormone and it's also present in human beings too slightly less of a degree it's mostly in our armpit sweat but it's also in our the rest of our body but like pigs we have a lot of subcutaneous fat a lot of fat throughout our bodies we are well marbled Okay, and um, if that fat is containing this androstenone, then our meat would smell like urine. So in other words, if you were to eat a mega rich person who's probably male and probably not castrated, there's a very good chance once you put a slab of that guy on the grill, it's going to smell like a dumpster fire. It's going to taste like one, too. (laughs) That's definitely the best answer to the question from hell. By the way, if you want to send us audio versions of your uh, answer to the question from hell, feel free to send those to us as well at chuckatthisishell.com. We also I'll show you probably just uh, start up our Google phone again, and maybe you could just leave your audio answer to the question from hell there. The other answers I liked were uh, on Patreon, Mason W. saying that he would eat Scrooge McDuck, Tom H. saying that pretentious little dweeb, Richie Rich, Kafka saying, I'm thinking Bruce Wayne, why would, uh, why should irrationalization be the only new pandemic? Lisa saying, I feed them all to Mel. Julie saying they're all disgusting. I'll go on a diet, but I will gladly feed Elon Musk to my pet crocodile, Alphonse. Jeff C. saying the first rich person I come across. So, yeah. Sorry, everybody. The uh, winner of this week's question from hell was Kat Bohan, an author of Eve on 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. We'll be contacting her and asking her which piece of This Is Hell merchandise she wants, and we'll be getting it in the mail to her as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, as posted on our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page by listener Jen D, which mega-rich person would you eat first? And thanks, Jen D. While I am not vegan or even a vegetarian, I have accidentally been vegetarian for a pretty long time when we couldn't afford meat and realized that it had nearly been a year since we had eaten any. I still aspire to being a vegetarian, so I think if I eat a mega-rich person, they should probably be vegetarian, if not vegan, which would be even better. Therefore, I looked up the richest vegan in the world, and the mega-rich person it turns out that I would eat would be... Norwegian physician and environmental activist Gunhild Stordalen, otherwise known as the world's most glamorous vegan Billionaire. There's a reason to eat them right there. According to the South China Morning Post, Stordalen's plant-based way of life is so hardcore, her entire career revolves around it. Although she sounds like she would be far too righteous, righteous for my palate. Probably tastes bitter. Chris, who are our confirmed guests for next week's show? 
the, the confirmed guests are the Institute for Policy Studies, John Kavanaugh, will be on to talk about the new report, State of Deception, a fact-finding report on El Salvador's detained water defenders, the potential return of environmentally destructive mining, and the state of human rights under the Bukele administration. And it looks like the Bukele administration will be re-elected this weekend, so we'll be discussing that on Monday. And then who was on Tuesday? Rachel Ida Buff will be on to discuss her Boston Review article, The Right Comes from Milwaukee, Why Did the Blue City Agree to Host the Republican National Convention, and to suspend a hard-won police reform for its duration. Ida is a writer and professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. You would really like that article, Chris. You should check that out. And who's our final guest next week? It's Bruce E. Levine, returns to This Is Hell to talk about his new counterpunch article, Scientific, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, the final nail in psychiatry's antidepressant coffin. Bruce is a practicing clinical psychologist. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking, and Radical Enlightenment. <laughs> Thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing. Fantastic job today, Chris. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. This is how office hours do happen every Wednesday at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. In Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, it's our weekly meet and greet that's actually a think and drink. Happens every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Every Wednesday, no matter the weather. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996. But wait, I'm doing the wrong tagline. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>